You're listening to Crow's Cast, a podcast by USF St. Petersburg's student newspaper, The Crow's Nest. This week, we'll be discussing politics. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Crow's Cast. This week is our inaugural episode of our political podcast. You're here with me, Catherine, and Trevor. Hello, everyone. We will be discussing our plans for the podcast as well as getting to know your hosts, myself and Trevor. And later in the episode, we will be interviewing political science professor Judith Ann McLaughlin. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it. Trevor, would you like to go ahead and explain our plans for the political podcast? So yeah, obviously this is an election year, so we'll be doing some election coverage. We'll be uh, discussing the debates when those take place. And then on top of that, we will be uh, interviewing professors and politicians discussing uh, issues ranging from um, key initiatives that politicians are introducing, campaigns that they're running, or with professors, um, interesting uh, political theory, uh, certain concepts that may entice our viewers. Um, So yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah. Um, And as well, we're also going to introduce ourselves. Um, Since this is a political podcast, we're going to go ahead and get right into it with sharing our own political alignments. Um, We are both on kind of opposite, separate ends of the spectrum a little bit. Um, I am a libertarian with more right-leaning values, but some things I lean either way on. And Trevor? (laughs) I am socially left and fiscally left. And... uh... (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's that's about it. That explains it. <laughs> we are also going to do a lightning round, which we do in every episode of Crow's Cast. Um, the first question for both of us is, if any current politician could be president, who would you choose? So, Trevor? Yeah, so I think uh, this is a little bit of an offhanded answer. A lot of people may not know who this is, but um, somebody who I've uh, really uh, enjoyed hearing from is a, a congressman named Ro Khanna. He's a representative out in California. He was one of the co-chairs of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Um, and he just ha- shares a lot of progressive values that I hold, and he, I think, would make for a great president. That's great. Um, for me, I would say it's probably Justin Amash. Um, he's a Michigan res- representative that was Republican and turned Libertarian in 2019. Um, He was also one of the only Republicans to support the Trump impeachment. So I guess the next question in our lightning round is who slash what is your favorite political or social media figure? So yeah, I follow a lot of independent uh, media figures. Uh, So one of them is this guy named David Pakman. He actually uh, has a podcast on YouTube. um, And he talks about a lot of, um, you know, political news, whether that's uh, Trump or, uh, you know, he did a full coverage of the DNC and the RNC, and he just, you know, I think provides a lot of uh, interesting and nuanced insight into political issues, and uh, yeah, so I think you guys should check him out. For me, I'm a part of a Facebook group called The Odd Place Between Right Wing and Libertarian, which honestly has some of my favorite political memes in it, which I love political memes. I don't know about you. Um, And I also follow a lot of independent journalists on Instagram and Twitter because I think they give a lot more of an honest and unbiased view on news and politics than we see from some of the mainstream news sources. Um, So yeah, that's the end of our lightning round. Just give you a quick moment to get to know your hosts. Let's go ahead and get into um, a brief discussion on who we interviewed today. Trevor? Yeah, so we interviewed Dr. Judith Ann McLaughlin. She is a political science professor at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. 
Um, I've taken her for two classes. Well, it was one class, basically, but six credits. It was the Road to the White House course, which uh, you will see we discussed um, quite a bit in this interview. Um, and then I'm also taking her this semester with practical politics and con law. Um, she's, she's a great professor. She's just really kind and understanding. And I think she's also just really fascinating in terms of like what she's accomplished in her life and all of the things that she's tried out and, all, and ob obviously how knowledgeable she is as well. So, yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into the interview. Um, we really look forward to you all hearing what um, Dr. Judith Ann McLaughlin has to share. Here we are with Dr. Judith Ann McLaughlin. We're going to discuss many things from Road to the White House to, you know, your class this semester with campaigning and the 2020 election, which everyone is talking about. So would you like to like introduce yourself so everyone knows who you are if they don't already? Sure. I am Judith Ann McLaughlin, and I am a professor of political science and also founding director of our Center for Civic Engagement on the St. Petersburg campus. This is my 18th year at USF St. Petersburg campus. Before coming to USF, I spent a long time working in government and politics. I worked for the U.S. Supreme Court uh, for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Justice Ginsburg's confirmation hearings for the Justice Department, for the White House, and worked on lots of campaigns and elections across the U.S. And my passion is to get students engaged and involved in the political process to help facilitate their internships and uh, engagement with the democratic process. Small d, democratic process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, we're also going to be doing a lightning round in every episode of the Curse Cast, which will allow us to get to know the people we're interviewing. Um, so my first question for you is, what is your favorite class to teach and why? So that's a trick question, and I can't do that in a lightning round. <laughs> I think if you're ever in my class, I always say, like, this is my favorite class. And I really feel that way about any class that I'm teaching. Um, I feel really lucky that I've been able to teach classes that I really enjoy um, for one reason or another. So I really love all of the classes that I teach, and it's really hard to pick just one. Okay. So what's your favorite thing about USF St. Pete then? I think that goes along with the first lightning round question, which is I've been able to design and develop classes and projects and program along the lines of what I'm passionate about and, and have been encouraged and able to do that. So I had a Fulbright in Moldova and I came back and, you know, I wanted to bring my students to Moldova. And so I developed a study abroad class and brought my class to Chisinau. And, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you can go to London or Paris anytime, but now let's go <laughs> to Moldova. And it was amazing, you know, my very first semester here, you know, I really wanted to develop a road to the White House class where I was going to take my students up to New Hampshire and they were going to get the experience like I had working on presidential primary campaign in New Hampshire. And I was so lucky uh, that, you know, I had a department chair and a dean and a chancellor and they were just so supportive and were just like, go for it. And they helped make it happen, cut all the red tape in the bureaucracy and, and we did it. So how long have you been doing Road to the White House? Well, I have, it's a quadrennial course, and I just taught it for the fifth time in the 2020 election cycle. Considering, like, you know, people talk about how 2020 is, like, an unprecedented year, and 
Um, even the primary was kind of unprecedented in the sense that like people would make jokes on Twitter, like people are falling off the debate stage because there are so many candidates and, and stuff like that. So like, what was your biggest takeaway from this year's Road to the White House? So this year's Road to the White House was, there was so much interest. You know, again, I've been doing it every cycle uh, now since 2004, but there it was off the charts. And so we had a really robust uh, application process, which I always do, but we had the app, written applications and interviews and there was so much interest and so many really terrific students. Um, so it was hard for me to, because normally I try to keep it to like between 20 and 22 students so that we can comfortably travel around the state of New Hampshire in two 15 passenger vans. Um, but this year was unprecedented. So we ended up with close to 30 students in three uh, 15 passenger vans traveling around the state. So we had uh, eight campaigns represented uh, in more than three cities because there were some campaigns where the students moved to different cities. So first takeaway, I'm not sure <laughs> that was a lot to keep track of. Although if I look at the roster and I think who would I have eliminated, you know, that would be tough. So, I mean, it was great to have everyone that we had and, and all the campaigns that were that were represented. But there are some logistical takeaways from that that will go into my next planning process. Well, you already mentioned some of the challenges that went along, you know, with having such a large scale interest in this election. But what would you say were was the most surprising part of the campaigns? What campaigns themselves surprised you the most? That's a good question. I don't I don't know. I mean I, I don't know that I was surprised. Yeah, I don't know that I have I don't know that I, I, I was remember surprised. the campaign. Yeah. So yes, as far as results, that was a big surprise. Yeah, and that kind of goes to show you mentioned the debates earlier and how many debates the people <laughs> on the stage. Um, that debate really seemed to make a difference. Um, Senator Klobuchar really did herself some favors uh, at that debate and came off tough and strong. And the students who worked for Amy Klobuchar actually were inside. I was so proud. Uh, that was actually the first time we had some of our students actually in the debate, in the audience there at St. A's. And that was really exciting for them. And actually that primary night, actually I was with the Amy um, Klobuchar campaign and at their event. And actually our students, really stood out because that was a smaller operation and they were up on the stage and one of our students was right next to Amy Klobuchar on the stage on primary night and because it was such an upset with her coming in you know third ahead of what people had projected or expected our student from USF St. Petersburg was like on international news all the time on like constant CNN loops and it was so exciting to see her there and then after that event they brought those two students back to the boiler room and Amy Klobuchar like personally thanked them for all the contributions that they made to the campaign and it was really incredible so you know that was one of those things uh where you know as I said this is the fifth time now and I'm used to our students getting to do some cool things yeah, and one of the other campaigns that stood out to me that <laughs> maybe in, in a bad way was uh, Joe Biden's campaign. I mean, at least from the uh, volunteers that I spoke with, they said that they weren't given many tasks. The grassroots operation really just wasn't, um, it didn't match up to the others like, uh, like Bernie and Warren. And I looked at, uh, I was looking at something on uh, social media that was talking about 
Biden's win in Virginia on Super Tuesday, and it was talking about how like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have like exponentially more uh, like field offices than than Biden did, and he still won by like a really wide margin. So, what do you think Biden's victory says about grassroots campaigning? One of the reasons why I developed Road to the White House and why I'm so passionate about bringing students to New Hampshire, even though Florida, in the general election, Florida is the battleground to end all battlegrounds. But why I like to bring students to New Hampshire is so that they can really roll up their sleeves and, and learn about grassroots organizing, because up there it is all about field. And even though the campaigns have gotten more expensive, and even though there's more on television, you know, up in New Hampshire leading up to the primary, it's still a place where grassroots organizing and retail politics uh, makes a big, you know, can make a big difference. And, and someone who's got maybe less money and less well-known could actually break through potentially. But field, I mean, in general, you know, field, field makes a big difference in a close race. You know, I've, I got my start in politics, you know, at least on campaigns and field. I'm really passionate about field and voter contact and um, particularly like one-on-one -on -one conversations with voters and getting actual voters engaged in the process and caring about our democracy and caring about our government and who's leading it. But, you know, at the end, there's all, you know, from the field, there's always all of this stuff, right? Like in class, we talk about the air war and the ground war, and there's, there's stuff out there that you can't control that's happening, the, the media and the messaging and the television and, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you can't influence in the field. So your field operation can't necessarily overcome some of those barriers. At the end of the day, I think there's still a really important place for field. And I think that Biden is committed to having, you know, a strong grassroots organization as we're working with the state parties around, you know, the country and certainly in the battleground states, um, you know, including here in Florida. And, um, and that's really important. But in some of those states, you know, at the end of the day, people knew Joe Biden. I think his message resonated. Full disclosure, I, I was supporting Biden and I was a Biden delegate to the DNC convention. So... I, I'm not trying to just give you the party line here, but I mean, I think it, it is what we saw that people, you know, the Democratic primary voters ultimately just wanted someone that they knew and could trust and was a, you know, an antidote to some of the divisiveness uh, in politics today. And so when I went up in the fall, for example, like Elizabeth Warren, I knew she was going to have just an incredible field uh, organization. I was like, if you want to learn field and grassroots organizing, like she was going to have the best. I thought her <laughs> her field would go toe to toe with anyone else, right? Because she was just going to have such a great field operation. I loved that she had plans for everything, you know, but if people don't agree with the plans, right? Like no matter how good your, your operation is, no matter how many doors you knock on, if people don't want to have you know, a single payer universal healthcare system, like your field organization is not gonna overcome some of that. So I, I'm not discouraged that, you know, that it meant that campaigns that had better field organizations didn't win because I feel like field is still gonna be really important. Well, speaking of the 2020 election, like you were just, you know, talking about, it's kind of been branded one of the most important elections of the decade. Um, I've heard some even compare it to the election of 1860. So, you know, do you think that the 2020 election is going to be, you know, controversial, perhaps like the 2000 election? Do you think that that's possible? 
I think it is possible. I did work on the 2000 election. I worked for Al Gore, started in New Hampshire, and then I was in Maine, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, New Jersey. Then I was the state director in Oregon, which, by the way, was the first time we ever had a 100% vote by mail election for president in the U.S. But then I came to Florida and worked on the recount here. And um, that's could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I mean, you're going to give me nightmares. I, I hope it's it's not, you know, coming to that. But for me, the most tragic part of that whole thing was that, you know, about half the people voted, right? So I felt like that was a very sad day for our democracy. Um, not only the issue of the Electoral College, which is a totally different discussion, but just the fact that, you know, so many people did not engage in the process at all. So I guess my hope as an antidote for that this time is that people will register to vote here in Florida. They have only until October 5th um, and that they will engage in the process and cast a ballot, you know, and with my students, that's what I want the message to be, to get involved in the process and whoever they're voting for, you know, I, I just want them to be involved in the process. So I do hope we'll see an increase in, in voter turnout in 2020. So I hope that it's not going to be down to, you know, 537 votes in Florida. I mean, it needs to be a res more resounding results, I think, yeah. to avoid that kind of national nightmare. So we were just wondering what your prediction is on the results for the 2020 election. What do you expect it will be? <laughs> well, I don't really want <laughs> to be a pundit for this purpose. Uh, I would say I really just want to see everybody get involved. Uh, not be complacent or think that, you know, the polls look a certain way. You know, I think everyone needs to feel like that they're running behind and need to catch up. I think I wouldn't take anything for granted in this election cycle, honestly. It was so close in 2016, you know, just three states with very small margins pushing the Electoral College the other way, you know, I think this race is going to be very close. And any poll that looks like someone's pulling ahead, I would just keep working at, for your candidate as if you're behind because, you know, I mean, it's kind of a trite thing. You hear usually candidates who are down in the polls say, well, the only poll that really matters is the poll that's on election day. And it's like, okay, well, you must be losing the polls right now because <laughs> otherwise you'd be touting that you're winning. Um, but really in this case, in this cycle there's just so much on the line that I wouldn't want to make a prediction honestly uh, and and I would just want students to be engaged and work hard as if their lives depend on it because as we can see your life depends on it. I think that people should be requesting their vote by mail ballots and that does not mean you need to wait for it to be snail mail back. I mean I've been voting by mail in Pinellas for years but I always like to bring my ballot box so I can stick it in the box and get my little sticker. So just because people request a ballot, they can still turn the ballot in in person at one of the drop box locations. So I would encourage everyone to be registered by October 5th, request their mail ballot. Ballots are going to be mailed on September 29th. So get your ballot, fill it out, write it away, and then use the rest of those <clears throat> couple of weeks to get everybody else to do the same. So the last question is pretty loaded. So this may take you a while. This is a very loaded uh -oh. question. So <laughs> I feel like 
this phenomenon is kind of like under discussed is the idea of just the politician like as is and you yourself have run for office before and so what was your thought process going into that what exactly did you want to accomplish like obviously people want to accomplish like you know being elected to office but what made you want to do that and would you do it again I worked on a lot of campaigns and worked in government, probably always in the back of my mind, maybe thought oh, maybe someday I'd run, run for, I mean, I was student body president when I was in college. You know, I was in, always active in student organizations and, you know, maybe as something in the back of my mind. But with that particular race, I was so, I was running against the only person in the Florida Senate to vote against accepting the Medicaid expansion funding, and someone who had not been challenged in the past. And I felt so strongly about people being ha having the ability to have access to healthcare. And this was federal dollars that would come to support the expansion of the Medicaid program that were being refused. And I thought that was unconscionable. And at the time, I, I mean, in the beginning, I, in a non-politician way, I was like, I don't know how he sleeps at night. So I just, I felt like I had, I just felt compelled. Now, the political scientist in me would have known, well, this is, you know, I knew it was a non-presidential election year, so I knew turnout would be lower. I don't know that I banked on a 72-year low of voter turnout. I knew about incumbency advantage. I knew about the financial, you know, as, a, as someone who's independently wealthy, multimillionaire in the majority party. I mean, the odds were really stacked against us, but I felt really passionate about the need to get in the race and perhaps overlook some of those things. I mean, that should have been, uh, well, it was, in fact, the only opportunity that the Democrats would have had to flip a seat that cycle it was the only competitive race in the state. And um, it was really, really hard. There were negative attacks on me that were just astonishing. Anything good I had done in my life was made into a negative thing and millions of dollars were spent pushing that out. So, you know, I mentioned earlier being a Fulbright scholar well, that became liberal college professor Judith Ann McLaughlin travels the world at taxpayer expense. That was on all the mail pieces. Well, I told you about the study abroad. Pictures of my students were in mail pieces from the other party. There were push polling calls, GOTV weekend, that independent voters were getting saying, would you vote? for liberal college professor Judith Ann McLaughlin if you knew she promoted underage drinking in her classes because well when we were in Moldova wineries is like a big thing there that was like their thing that they made during Soviet times you know so we did go visit wineries but there was no underage drinking in that class but that's what they used I was in the League of Women Voters I used to be on the board of directors of the League of Women Voters that's what they used and all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in these television ads that said that I supported a state income tax. 
Well, I never supported a state income tax, which by the way, violates the Florida constitution. And by the way, I moved to Florida from New Hampshire, where I was working for Gene Shaheen for US Senate, who also did not support a state income tax. But because I was in the League of Women Voters, and I guess 25 years ago, you know, the League had put some report together about that we should have, we should reevaluate our tax structure in Florida that in would include considering an income tax. That somehow got pinned on me. It was really painful. The only attack that I actually didn't mind, there was a lit piece that had a picture of me in a white lab coat with these like blue gloves on looking like I was going to give a rectal exam, but that one was about the healthcare and my support for Obamacare. So I was like, okay, I'll go down on that sword because that's why I came into the race. And if you want to attack me for trying to make sure people have access to healthcare, fine. I mean, I have had some hard jobs, but being the candidate is a totally different, a totally different thing when it's you on the line and you being personally attacked. And I used to joke in the beginning of the campaign, like, oh, ha, ha, I need to have some thick skin. I know, ha, ha, ha. I had no idea. Of course, all of it comes out at the end, right? And because we were the only competitive race and because there was like publicly available polling that showed us like within a point, they just millions of dollars attacking me, you know? And at the end of the day, I wasn't planning on, I don't know, profiting from Tallahassee, which honestly in many ways is a cesspool. And, you know, I wasn't going to try to leave there and become some, you know, a well-heeled lobbyist or whatever. You know, I just, I was planning that I would still teach. And I just wanted to try to have someone in Tallahassee who was making decisions based on research and data and in a thoughtful way, um, not beholden to special interests, but trying to make decisions that would be for the best interests of the people here in Tampa Bay, but in the state of Florida. So, it's a tough question. So I guess I don't regret running. I mean, what did we get out of it? We were able to bring attention to those issues, namely on, on healthcare in particular, but also education and the environment. You know, I mean, oftentimes, like I'd be the only one at these candidate forums. So we had a platform that we could talk about that. But it's really hard, you know, it's hard because, um, you know, if you don't have the money to get your message out. I probably shouldn't have picked a non-presidential year <laughs> against a well-funded incumbent. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess I'm not sorry because, you know, it was important that we brought attention to those issues. Obviously, we still need to do more to expand access to healthcare. Would I run again? Yes if something calls me in the same kind of way, you know, if I feel like I can make a difference, I'm really busy with everything that I'm doing with my classes and my students and my research and my family. But if I felt like there was a, an office or a race or something where I could really contribute, I would consider doing it again. But I do hope that my students will consider, you know, again, we need more young people. I felt like a voice that I would bring to the table is someone who's a working mom. And I, um, you know, realized every single day on that campaign why we don't have more women and why we don't have more moms and why we don't have more working moms in office because it's really hard to balance. I mean, it's hard to balance having a job and having a family anyway, let alone putting a campaign on top of all that. So I just felt like working families um, needed representation. Do you think the financial toll that, you know, people take through running campaigns 
really discourages like working people from getting involved and would you support like public financing of campaigns like do you agree with that yes and it's kind of funny because early on was not a big issue for me campaign finance and i worked on campaigns for a really long time not thinking that it was the most pressing issue you know even in that gore versus bradley primary that was a big issue campaign finance but i thought of all my years working in government and politics like i never saw that people were corrupted or you know making voting certain ways because of the donors and i just thought i'd rather fight for the improvements to education and healthcare and the environment things and not worry so much about campaign finance but well, since 2010 and Citizens United and some of the changes that have happened now, I really do feel like we are threatened. Our democracy is threatened. And it is important to find a way to finance campaigns. You know, I, I understand the First Amendment perspective, but I mean, one of the things with the court, I mean, there always used to be people on the court who had held elective office before, whether they were U.S. senators, obviously the president, you know, people who knew about campaigns and elections and what they're really like. And I feel like that decision had a naivete to it. And it's fine to say that the First Amendment protects people's right to to speech, but at the same time, we have a system where we're only hearing the perspectives of people who have the money to fund that speech. And then there's other speech we're not hearing. So how can we make sure we hear all the speech that we want to hear? So I feel like we do need a real reform in that area because we're not able to fully live up to our democratic ideals uh, if we don't. And that should be it for the interview. Please subscribe if you'd like to stay tuned for future episodes. And next week, we will be having our University Life podcast.